When my next guest was sitting in a jail in Franklin County Jail of May of 89, she wondered how she'd ended up at this low point. At the time, she was a first-year law student and was serving 10 days for her second conviction operating a vehicle under the influence. When she left jail, she vowed never to return. Today, she's thought to be one of the only judges in Ohio who's open about her addiction and recovery journey and is sharing her experience with us. That's up next on Recovery Talks, the podcast. Direct from Akron, Ohio, the epicenter of modern recovery. This is Recovery Talks, the podcast. From those in recovery to those working in recovery, meet those who are shining the light on Recovery Talks right now. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Recovery Talks, the podcast. And my guest today is Judge Susan Baker-Russ. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me before I forget to say that. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, we both just mentioned to each other that we're both nervous. And I think that's just pretty natural. Um, This is Judge Susan Baker-Russ's, Judge Ross's first podcast. So, uh, and I always feel like it's my first podcast because I'm so unskilled at this, you know, but, you know, we're going to power through it. But today, I just want to talk a little bit about how we got here. And before we do that, I want to talk about you, you know, doing my due diligence. I looked, uh, just looked up a little bit. You graduated from the U of A with a BA in management in 1988, and you got your JD in May of 1991, and your sobriety date falls in between that. So the first (laughs) thing I thought is, (laughs) I remembered getting sober the first few miles from me and uh, Judge Ross, I couldn't think. I literally was having, I was working as an executive then, and I, I remember having a phone call with someone who said to me, Mr. Shannon, are you aware that you just called me 20 minutes ago to ask me that same question? And I hadn't been. And for me, it was post-acute withdrawal. And I, my brain just wasn't working the way it was. And I had a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear. And if you put me under stress, bam. It just didn't seem to work. My synapses didn't fire the same way when I first got sober. And so the very first question I want to ask you after I talk about you and tell everybody how wonderful you are is how did that work for you? So you've got such a list of credentials and I read it off the website, but I'm not going to read all of that. Um, But I do want to point out a couple of things that I thought were really strange. You were a member of the Alcohol, Drug, Addiction and Mental Health uh, Services Board and also a Girl Scout leader. You know what I mean? So that that seemed to me some. (laughs) Some pretty good bandwidth there, Judge Ross. Pretty good bandwidth. We met at a recovery event. And I just remember thinking this was a nice person. Then I and then somebody said to me, Don't you know who she is? And I thought, wow, I I think I need to know her. And I might have even just circled back a little bit to get your card to ask you to be on my podcast. And I just remember it was a super hot day, and you kind of looked at me kind of like a little bit like, you know, a cat watching TV. You know what I mean? <laughs> but then you were so kind to me and said, sure. I'd love to do it. And it was that intention that attracted me to in the first place. So that's how we got here to really frame this up a little bit about you. And I want to read from the Akron Beacon Journal article from May of 2019, just to introduce you a little bit. And it starts by saying, while Susan Baker Ross sat in a stark cell in the Franklin County Jail in May of 89, she read her trial advocacy textbook and wondered how she ended up at this low point. Ross, then a first-year law student at the University of Akron, was serving 10 days for a second conviction for operating a vehicle under the influence. When she left jail, she resolved never to return. And when I read that, all I could think about was me leaving St. Thomas Detox Ward in June of 2014 and just walking out of there. And it seemed like 
everything was brighter. Everything was clearer. And I just said to myself, you are never going back there. You are never going back there. Now, I wasn't unfortunately able to stay sober until November of that following year because I had some issues I had to deal with, post-acute withdrawal, um, you know, trying to deal with that. But when I, when I put that all together, when I saw that, and then I put it together with you saying, man, you were in law school when this was going on. I was. Wow. Yeah, I was. Wow. So heavy props for that. So um, why don't you start at the beginning and tell your story to our listeners in the way you, you feel is comfortable? How did, how did you get to that point? I, I saw that, you know, you, you had mentioned in that article also that, you know, during high school, you were a little bit of a partier. I was too, you know, but I, I stayed under the radar. Was that your story? Were you able to stay under the radar when you were coming up and discovering, you know, substance use? I'm not sure I stayed under the radar, to be honest with you, but I didn't have any legal trouble. I'll say that. Mm. Um, my folks mm. divorced when I was a baby and um, my mom remarried. I was, um, and I always share this and people get, it makes people uncomfortable. So hopefully it doesn't for you, but I'm a, a survivor of sex abuse as a child. So I carried that trauma with me into my teens. and. Um, I just chose to, rather than taking the opportunities to get help for the trauma, I chose to drink and, and drug instead because that is what gave me the relief that I needed at the time. And that just spiraled into 10 years of drinking and smoking pot, smoking cigarettes, all the things, you know. I, I can relate to that. And I also have admitted several times on this podcast that that's also part of my story. And in those days when I was growing up, it was something that you, nobody talked about. You just didn't talk about it. And I, I think I may have even gotten close to having the person that did it to me get caught. And even then it was, nobody mentioned it. And so I grew up dealing with that feeling of being less than, feeling maybe like I had not been abandoned emotionally, physically, by the people that were caring for me. And if I talk to them today, I think they would look at it differently if I could go back in time. But I know that it made me, number one, never ask for help from people. I was the first to help someone else because I knew what it felt like to need help. So I would reach out. But was that also something you felt when you were coming up? Like, you know, I can't talk about this. I can't talk to anybody. Did you have difficulties with that, with communication to others? Is that maybe where the substance abuse started? Okay. So first, I think it's a much harder for men to talk about that than it is for women because it's so much more out there that this happened to women than it is with men. Men keep their mouth shut a lot. So and I get that because there's all kinds of challenges that men are going to face when they admit something like that happened to them. I don't know why it's different, but somehow it is. But for me, yeah, I I felt less than, I felt like, why me? Actually, my stepfather went to prison for offending a friend of mine. And I was like, okay, so he offended me and nothing happened. But when it happened to this friend, she goes to prison. So what's wrong with me and my chopped liver? You know, why, why didn't anything happened when I said something to somebody. And so I carried that for really, and I want to tell you, it's funny. I was listening to your podcast. I went to a, a retreat this weekend and I was listening to one of your podcasts trying to prepare for today. And um, I heard someone talk about um, mm -hmm. feeling that, you know, self-worth issue. And that's the first time that that really hit me so directly in the eyes that she was treated the way her experience was treated differently than mine. That person, that friend of mine who was a victim also.
Yeah, you know, I, I just think that it was the it was an era, uh, and the the schools I went to, I went to Catholic schools, and I I'm not a I'm not a pissed off Catholic, not at all. I'm just not that guy. It just didn't my not my experience. There was weird people there. There's weird people everywhere. But I do remember feeling that I couldn't talk about things and don't talk don't talk about it. And so when I when I was coming up, and I found a tribe of people. You know, for me, it was smoking pot, you know, and I mean, all of a sudden riding around in vans, listening to music and being cool and finding people that accepted me as being a little bit messed up. We were all kind of broken together. And then I found my tribe. And so I just went in on that. And the early stages of my substance abuse, and I think really, I, I want to see your perspective, but, you know, it was a little bit fun. I was finally with a group of people where I felt like I could just kind of be me. You know, I was in the music business, so hanging out with musicians, you know, trying to tune our guitars after smoking weed for three hours, you know, that was funny. You know, I look back on it now and think of it as a big waste. But I mean, did you also share that, that, hey, look, I found a tribe here. There's people here that will accept me. Absolutely. You know, I mean, I didn't really feel like I fit anywhere. I wasn't really sporty and um, I wasn't super smart. I wasn't dumb at all, but I wasn't like in the, you know, AP classes or anything. But I found this group of people who were all kind of, I don't know, Renard calls them the misfits. It, it's really what we were. We were just a lot of folks who were kind of out there um, trying to deal with life and finding that we all used um, alcohol and other things to to deal. And Frank, in my house, like I was full of a lot of rage. When I was a teenager, I had a lot of rage. My mom had a lot of guilt because this had happened under her watch. And so I pretty much ran my house for a while and everybody come over, came over to my house. And this is back in the 80s when people didn't get arrested for allowing kids to drink and do things in their house, right? So my house was the party house growing up. So I think, I really think that's why I stayed out of trouble, you know? But I mean, my friends did stupid things. I, they did stupid things. And um, I'm grateful that I didn't get caught in the middle of that because... My later escapades were enough for me to have to overcome to be able to be where I'm at today, let alone adding some other stuff like that to it. Totally relate to that. My early, <laughs> early using days were just, you know, filled with chapters of the book of my regrets. You know, yes. almost, how did that almost not happen? How do we almost not get caught? How do we almost, but, but I, for me, you know, it, as, as we know with this illness, um, I call it a disease. Some people don't like that word, but I do. I know that it, for me, it was progressive. And um, I felt that at the early stages where I could say, okay, I'm kind of managing this. You know, I wasn't stupid. I went off to school in LA. I had a record deal pretty early on. And, but I, I could tell that there was definitely some creeping into, okay, this is work, this is party. And then then those lines started blurring. And then there was the second stage of my using, which was, wait a minute, what just happened? Uh-oh, right? Either car, maybe close run-ins with the police. Uh, what happened to my money? How did I, what happened last night? That's where the real, and for me, the big one, and I've mentioned it lots of times is, you know, when I was introduced to cocaine in LA as a studio musician. And that just was the game changer for me because I realized for the very first time, I don't have control here, right? I'm out of control. Once I start this, forget it. It's all over. And um, 
I was wondering if there was a place for you where you found with your your using and drinking where you felt like, you know what? Yeah, for me, I always think of that first step is I tell myself I'm not going to do it and then I couldn't not do it. Was there a place for you where you found like you hit into that, uh-oh, what just happened moment? I mean, I think I knew I was an alcoholic for a really long time before I quit. My primary drug of choice was alcohol. I used other things, but alcohol was kind of my go-to. When I was in college, I got to this point where I had to, I did what I call my binge drinking phase where during the week I wouldn't drink. And on the weekends, Thursday through Sunday, I would drink and all of that would happen. And then during the week, I'd get all my schoolwork done and try and be this you know, good student. So, I mean, I did pretty well in school. I don't know that I was ever physically addicted to alcohol, so I can be grateful for that. But I do know that it got to the point in the late 80s where it was like drink trouble, drink trouble, drink trouble. And that was where I had to kind of draw the line. Um, I, I wish I could say that when I got out of jail in June of 1989, that I never drank again. But in fact, I did have one drink one more time in July because all the trouble, and you know this, you can be in so much trouble. You can be, I was facing potentially losing my ability to be a lawyer because I had a potential felony pending. And I was still taking the risks um, until I reached the point where I realized I I was trying to obtain something other than alcohol. I couldn't get that and I took a drink. And I'll never forget how that felt. I had one drink that night, July 18th of 1989. I remember how that drink went down. I could feel it. I immediately felt the phenomenon of craving kick in and I wanted more. And if I hadn't been with a guy on a bike at motorcycle, you know, an hour away, I probably uh, would have gotten drunk that night and God knows where I would have gone. Somehow that person was like, you're not getting drunk on my watch. <laughs> so he got by the time I was back to Akron, I was sober. And I, to this day, I can remember how that felt and how that craving kicked in. And that was just, that was my my final warning from God. You are powerless. If you want a different life for yourself, you cannot do this anymore. I think when you were saying that, I was thinking back to my last night of drinking, and it was uh, in my house in Copley. I had a beautiful home. I was working executive. I had a beautiful life, uh, but it was miserable. The next morning, a friend of mine came over and sat me up in bed and said, look, you know, if you want to go to detox, I'll take you, you know, Uh, but if you don't, I'm going to leave you here. You know, and uh, that was the that was the game changer for me. And so, you know, I I knew once I was in a medical institution that it was bigger than me. And I, I I had to what I come to say is the come to the final step when you when you finally learn to say those three words that are the essential in recovery, which is please help me. I wouldn't say them. I wouldn't do it. You know, I always would be the first to help other people because I knew what it felt like, like I said before, to need help. But to finally admit that maybe maybe there's something that I can't fix here. Because I was that guy that, you know, I won't drink on Friday. I'll just drink Saturday. I won't drink that dark liquor because that stuff make you crazy. You know, I won't, uh, 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 you know, and I tried to massage it all to be in control of it. But once I admitted that I had 
First and foremost, for me, being a confirmed alcoholic, I had a medical problem I had to resolve, which was I had to get into long-term abstinence and to get my brain to start working again. But I got lucky because I decided to get into treatment and went into work with a, a, a tough old bird named Patty at, uh, at Edwin Shaw, and she just used my brain. She said, Mr. Shannon, you're not a bad person. You're a sick person. You know, that was the changing point for me, you know, where I felt like, okay, something else is going to happen. Let's talk about the moment of truth where you finally decided, okay, I'm not going back. I call that the, the fall down on your knees, please help me moment. But, you know, when you felt like that, I'm not going to have a drink again, you got to that point. So that's great. But what did you do then? What was your next steps? Well, I stuck my tail between my legs and uh, went back to my 12-step meetings that I had been attending and then quit going to and got a sponsor and started working the steps and cleaned ashtrays and made coffee and did all those things that you do at 12-step meetings. Just made a commitment that I'm going to do whatever I have to do to, to change so that I don't go back there because, you know, I had already found in, this, in the rooms, I'd already found people who loved me more than, because I'd been going on and off for three months, the meetings at that point, people who loved me more than the people I drank with, and I'd only known them for a couple months. So I already, I knew that was there for me, but I think, I honestly think part of me didn't think I deserved it. You know, part of me just felt like, You've just done so many things and you have hurt yourself in so many different ways that I don't know that you're entitled to like this redemption and this happiness and this joy that you can find in recovery. I remember somebody saying to me, we're going to love you until you can love yourself again. That was a game changer to me. Wrote it down on a piece of paper and slid it over to me because it's no surprise that I also am a big supporter of the 12-step advocacy program. And what I like about Programs like that, not to single it out. What I like about programs like that is that everybody's in it together. Hey, you know what I mean? I did that, you did that. Oh, oh, you did that crazy thing? Oh, I did that crazy thing too. And, you know, it becomes part of my toolbox. For me, one of the biggest, I think, changes uh, in sobriety is that I've got a toolbox that I use now instead of drinking. When we, we talked a little bit before we started recording about, you know, coming through the pandemic uh, and I, you know, me staying sober through that. But I, it was really about being involved in this podcast, being connected with people, being able to get on Zoom and to see people like me and to relate to them and pick up the phone and call and go, how are you doing? I'm not doing so good today. Well, how about me? And it was that group of recovery, where we become a part of something together. I call it a tribe. The tribe is my, you know, so the three things I know work for me is, hey, don't use today. That's it. All there is to it. Get through this 24 hours. Number two, find your tribe. And that tribe can be different. It doesn't necessarily have to be. And I say this to a lot of people, not every meeting is the same. You know, you've got to find the ones that work for you. There's certain things that don't work for me. And the final thing is doing what we're doing today, which is, you know, talk about it. And share it with others, not be afraid of it. And that's what I want to segue into you and your discussion too, is, is I, I noticed that in a lot of the, the, the literature about you, that, you know, there's a, a lot of comments about how people are making remarks about hell and she's right out front with it. She had all these problems, but she talked about it and you're an elected public official, man, how did that work? 
you know, because there had to be a decision at some point to say, wow, I got to be upfront. I got to just talk about it and say this. And boy, I, I, I can say that from my perspective, that takes a great deal of courage and bravo to you. So tell me about that. Well, I will say, you know, it helped, honestly, that I was at that point in long-term recovery. If I had been five years sober, I think it would have been a lot more difficult for people to embrace me in the way that they did with my long-term recovery. Because when I was on the ballot, I celebrated 29 years that year. I, I will just say this is this is it. I am me. I am who I am. If you want me to be your elected official, you have to accept me for who I am. And who I am is someone who has been through a lot and has come through it and has grown and become this other person. And so I truly, truly believed that I was supposed to run. I absolutely believed that I was supposed to share my story and be out and open with it. I didn't know if I was supposed to win or not. I just knew I was supposed to be out there and and be authentic. And that's one of the things that I really work really hard to do is be authentic. I'm out talking to people and I'm campaigning and I share my story. I don't hide it. And I'll tell you what, at first I I did have a consultant because I had a tough race and I hired a consultant company and um, I had to sit down with them and have a talk about why I felt it was important that I lead with my recovery. And what I didn't want to happen is I didn't want my opponent, and I don't know that she would have done that, but I didn't know at the time. I didn't want the weekend before the election to have something come out saying that I, you know, was this alcoholic addict who um, had all this past criminal history and have it be something that I had hidden from people. I, that just didn't feel comfortable or right to me. And that's who I've been from the day before I got there to the day I've been on the bench. I haven't changed. I'll share with my defendants in front of me that I'm in recovery. I just, it's not something I'm ashamed of today. And it's um, not something I'm proud of today. It's just part of who I am. Right. It's not something we signed up for. I can't imagine being a kid and say, (laughs) you know what I want to do is when I grow up, I just really want to be a raging alcoholic. That's a good idea. (laughs) That was never part of my plan ever. And so for me, in in, in close working on on this time through my seventh, because it's certainly not the first time I tried to get sober. I first started into a program of recovery over 20 years ago, and it worked pretty well for five years. Of course, I didn't go to didn't work my steps. I didn't get a sponsor. And I just kind of hung around with a nice suit in the meeting saying really smart things. And everybody thought I was so cute. And then I had a bad divorce, which broke my heart and went back out in 11 years of trying to get back in. And there's nothing more painful to watch somebody, you know what I mean? Especially looking in the mirror every day going, dude, you got to get it together. You know, and so I think that on a certain level, those of us that have been through that have a different level of compassion for seeing people who are struggling to get back out there. We were them. We were them. I see myself doing that. You know, it's not hard for me to say to people, this is it. You know, and, and, you know, for and being a musician and being in recovery is kind of like, there's a lot of people, oh, oh, I see you're trying to get another record deal, aren't you? <laughs> so, so yeah. you can't, you can't get a deal unless you get sober, but, and it's, it's overused, unfortunately, and it, it's kind of abused a little bit that, that I just got sober thing. But the reality is, is, is when you shut up and do the work. And that's what I think that I admire about what I see you doing is that, you know, you're, you're, you're just doing the work and, and helping people. And so, um, one of the things I wanted to talk about is the prevalence, your profession, of the tendencies towards alcohol abuse. And I, I see it as, you know, from my former life, chronic stress 
is a killer. And so I see this with, with your profession of just the amount of work you guys have to do. It's so important. People's lives are in the balance. So how do you, how do you think that in your profession you cope with it? Because I understand you also are an advocate for, for people in your profession of sobriety. How do you do that? What do you do in, in that area? When I was in law school, I wrote a law review article about lawyers who cannot pass the bar, which was you know, a little spin on lawyers who drank and went into a bar a lot as opposed Love to that. the bar exam. Okay. So <laughs> 20% of the legal profession at that time, the statistics were 20% as opposed to 10% nationally had drug or alcohol issues. More recently in the last five, six years, there's been a study, almost 30% of the legal profession has some sort of mental health uh, challenges over 20% have drug or alcohol issues. So it's just ongoing. I've served on the Lawyers Assistance Committee on and off since 2001, currently serving as the co-chair with a fellow attorney. And um, we have been working on wellness seminars. So we've been doing this about five years, started out uh, with the heart-to-heart communications. Um, It's kind of morphed into just the Bar Association doing it right now. But we've had folks come in and talk about all the different coping mechanisms, resiliency, recognizing compassion fatigue, doing meditation, um, understanding the prevalence and how to address mental health and um, alcohol and drug issues in the profession. So um, those have been kind of the things we've been working on. We're actually working on another one. And I've just recently joined the Judicial Advisory Group for the Ohio State Bar Association. That's not even published anywhere yet because it's so recent. But um, that is a group that helps judges who are uh, struggling with addiction or mental health issues. So I just feel like it's part of my duty to be available to share my experience, strength, and hope with folks who might be struggling. And yes, there's a huge stress element. And then there's also, just like you said, the brevity of having people's lives in your hands, their divorce, their criminal case, their um, professional, their money, you know, whatever it is, whatever we as the legal profession do for somebody, their life is a lot of ways affected pretty strongly by it. So if you don't do a good job, a lot of times I think folks take it personally and internalize that. Fast forward to today, and this is how I like to wrap things up is, is you know, you've been sober for well over 30 years, which to me is just astounding. I mean, think I'll, I think I'll be over 100 years old by the time it happens. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking, of course, but not too far away. But I mean, what does it look like when you look back and say, okay, I've been through all this? You know, I like to use this analogy of, of you know, if we were both wearing military uniforms right now on our left forearm, there'd be hash marks, you know, and, and you know, Judge Ross, you've earned yours. How do you live today in the place of what you know after being through all that? And you know, what are the things that you may do differently? What would you say to our listening audience today for the people that maybe you know, are, are, are looking towards getting sober? How do you approach it? Because I think one of the, the, the things that I'm most amazed at is people in long, long, long-term sobriety is how they constantly continue to work. And that's the thing. You know, it's, it's never, ever taken for granted. And so I just kind of want to hear from your own voice, what you do, how you do it. Absolutely. Um, So first, I just want to say, I believe that each of us is a product of what has happened to us and um, whatever tools we had to deal with that. So 
um, when I have folks in front of me on the bench and they, um, I, I try to, to understand where they're coming from um, in terms of um, how did they get there? And I don't think anybody wakes up and says, I'm going to go steal somebody's private thing so that I can go get drugs today. Now, granted, they've broken the law and it's, it's hard being in that position, but I just try to have some compassion for that and try to, I mean, there's also a victim there. So it's, it's a balancing act that I have to do um, understanding where folks are coming from. But uh, I, so I just wanted to say that before I forget. But in terms of what I do today, I'm a work in progress. I absolutely am continuing to do the work. And I'll tell you, uh, one of the things I'm working on right now is sugar. <laughs> um, I will mm. tell you, I, sugar was my first love. I remember eating sugar cubes once I was like five. I know. Yeah. The cereal we ate when we were yeah, kids exactly. was just, a, it was amazing. Exactly. It was fabulous. It was. I know. So, right. I know. Right. So I carried that into sobriety. So when I was in a good place in sobriety, I would be really, do really well with food. But when I got into some difficult times in my sobriety, I turned to sugar and um, carbs. And once I tried to control that and found that I couldn't control it, I lost my peace around that. So I got into this program where I do no flour, no sugar. And I did it really good for four months. And then I fell off the wagon and gained a lot of weight back. And then over the next three years, I struggled to get back on plan full, full-fledged. I'm continuing to struggle with accepting that I'm powerless over sugar <laughs> and that when I use it, my life is unmanageable. So I'm actually dealing with that right now. And I am in... Um, mm. Mm. I think today is like day 36 with no flour, no sugar. I had 39 days in July and early August and then kind of blew it for a little while. But um, all of that led me to trauma therapy. And um, I'm actually back in therapy for, I, when I was new, I went to counseling and they just called it counseling back then. And I did some group counseling, individual counseling. But today they're doing things like EMDR and guided meditation where you let yourself go back and try to see what's going on inside of you. And so I've been doing that and that's been phenomenal. I feel like I'm at a point, I mean, it's all, for me, it's all about emotional sobriety. Like I can be sober for 50 years and if I don't have peace, then what's the point? So it's all, and so moving into this job created all this new level of stress and all this new level of responsibility. There's isolation that comes with being on the bench and folks that you might have hung out with before might not want to hang out with you anymore and all that kind of stuff plays in. And so mm. I found mm. myself kind of back into the sugar during the, the COVID. And so now I've just made a decision in January this year, my word is transformation. And so I've been in trauma therapy since the end of February. And I, I think it makes people uncomfortable when I talk about it, not you, but just in general, I, I tend to be a little too open about, oh yeah, I'm doing, yeah. I'm doing trauma therapy. And folks are like, whoa, too much information, lady. Uh, I, I, I've heard that so many times. It's like, you know, Mark, uh, you see it on their face like, Dude, I don't know how to process what you just said. That sounds really kind of a snowflakey to me. You know, well, maybe you should right. toughen up a little bit. And I'm like, well, yeah, I'm just telling you what's going on in my head right now because I always feel better when I'm authentic and real and out there. That's it for me. And, you know, coming to the grips of like, hey, this is what I really feel today. This is it. And not letting anybody subjugate my feelings anymore because I lived that way for too long, too long. And I, and I 
really resonate with what you're saying about body image issues because I've suffered from that my whole life. And they'll say, but Mark Lee, John, you're not bad. You're not this. I'm like, but you don't understand. Whenever I see a photo of me, because I get photographed a lot as a musician, I don't see the great parts. I see that one spot that I'm always thinking, oh, that doesn't look <laughs> alien. You know, yeah. and, and that's what you see. And so it is for me a, a constant work in practice. It's kind of like a friend of mine makes this analogy. He says, you know, y'all, if you buy the gym membership, you got to work out, right? So I bought in. Don't be the guy that sits on the, on the, on the machine and just stares at everybody. You got to do the work. Doing the work is what is really key for me. And so every day I get up and just tell myself, do a little better today. Absolutely. Just do a little better. And that's where the motivation is. And forgiving myself, learning how to forgive myself. Like, I was out with some friends last night. We stopped by Tricasa's. They had some killer spaghetti. I was like, I need me some of that. <laughs> I had a little bit. And it was delicious, you know, but I came home like, oh, 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 you're a bad person. You're a bad person because you ate after 10 o'clock and you ate at the And I'm like, you know what? You know, I think we can quiet that voice and forgive ourselves. And today's a new day. Yeah. You know, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on this podcast. What a delight to speak with you, you. And I hope we can keep in touch down the road. You know, I just want to say that, you know, these podcasts that we do, we try to feature those on the front lines in the recovery movement, the lantern holders and the lighthouses, you know, and absolutely Judge Susan Baker Ross, you are one of those for us. Thank and you. And for all our listeners, thank you for being here. And until the next time we can get together, everybody, let's just stay standing and uh, steady on. 